All right, you guys, we're gonna get going. Welcome, welcome. Good to see you all this morning. We are in a new season of the church calendar that is called the season of Epiphany. And the word epiphany means to appear or to reveal or make known. It's very close to the concept of revelation. And the, the idea for this season is, is to try to figure out how did those around Christ go from seeing him as just some Jewish boy with kind of a questionable origin story to seeing him as the Jewish Messiah and even the incarnation of God in the world's true Lord. How did God reveal this to the world? That's, that's the season of Epiphany. And so during this season, we tell these great stories about Jesus' life, and we ask ourselves two questions. What is being revealed here in this story, and how should we respond? That's Epiphany. It's the season of revelation and response. And one of the stories we usually start with, sometimes we have to do Magi or the story of um, the, uh, the baptism of Christ. We kind of switch off year to year. Um, but this is a story where, where he goes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. This dove comes and rests on him, symbolizing God's presence with him. And this voice says something like, this is my son, listen to him. Like you can trust what he says and where he's leading you. And really from that moment on, any place that Jesus went, people started asking questions. Like deep, difficult questions, existential questions about life and the world and what it means to be human, about God's way of being and interacting with hurting people, especially. And especially questions about their own faith tradition, about the Jewish faith. And over the course of the next 2,000 years or so, these questions really transformed the world time and again. Because questions are really, really powerful things. Um, when my youngest son, Lewis was in first grade, he was learning, memorizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he kept forgetting one of the tribes, Levi. He couldn't remember Levi for some reason. My wife was, Kristen was um, trying to quiz him on this and he kept forgetting that. And she was trying to jog his memory to remember the name. She, she turned around and pointed at the tag on the back of her jeans and she said, my jeans are, and Lewis said, too tight. <laughs> which is not one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So answers, answers can be fun and hilarious. But the questions, the questions are where it's at, man. Questions are powerful things and revealing things. In 1943, a little girl named Jenny Land asked her father a simple question. They had just taken a picture together, and she said, why do we have to wait for the picture? Her father was Edwin Land, a scientist and inventor, and he began to chase that question, which ultimately led to the creation of the Polaroid Instamatic camera, which is still a meme. One day, Albert Einstein was looking at his reflection in the mirror and just pondering the fact that th this is just light particles bouncing off the glass and hitting his retina, and he had this question pop into his mind. If I was traveling at the speed of light, would I still see my reflection? traveling at the speed of light. He spent 20 years asking this question and others like it, which kind of culminated in his theory of general relativity. In 1965, there was a football coach who had his players drinking a ton of water because they were practicing in the heat of the day. And he, he noticed something and asked this simple question, why don't any of the players need to go to the restroom? 
when we're drinking water constantly, they, they never go to the bathroom. Why, why is this? And, and he went to a, a professor at the college and asked, you know, why, why do they just sweat right through practice and not have to go to the bathroom? The professor said, if, if you sweat a whole bunch, you lose electrolytes that help you hang on to, to water. And so your body stays cool, but you start to eventually lose stamina and strength and energy. That's why they seem so tired. And so this professor mixes up this mixture of water and electrolytes, takes it to the coach, and the coach is like, I'm not drinking that. It looked gross, I guess. He said, but you can try it out on the players. And <laughs> yeah, total coach move. But he, and he was smart. He said, don't try it on the first team. Just try it on the second team first. We're going to kill somebody. Let us be somebody expendable. He gives it to the practice squad, and they had a big scrimmage that day, and the practice squad just wiped the floor with the other guys. They were running all over the field, doing, doing great. And, and then he noticed when practice was over, they didn't hang around to celebrate. They were all running, sprinting to the locker room to use the bathroom. Of course, the team was the Florida Gators, and the drink was later marketed as Gatorade. And today, the sports drink industry is like a $180 billion industry. And it all started with this simple question. Why aren't my players using the bathroom when they're drinking so much water during practice? A question is a powerful thing. In fact, questions, asking questions, is part of what it means to be a human being. We're born asking questions. The average four-year-old I read this week asks more than 300 questions a day, usually why, right? Which is why their parents look so frazzled all the time. Usually one parent more than the other because one parent just always says, go ask your mom or go ask your dad, right? Asking questions is how we learn. It's how we change and grow. And it never stops. Humanity is always asking questions. And the origin stories, the Christian and Jewish origin stories, they're filled with these powerful questions. But a weird thing happened within organized Christianity when the church um, started to get just a little bit of power. They became suddenly highly invested in answers. And most of the time, this has been a real problem. For one thing, anytime the church has undergone some kind of a split or schism, it has divided not over questions, but over answers. And Christianity in the West has sometimes been really obsessed with answers. And for another thing, it's, it becomes at some point very difficult to control answers. And so they back upstream and they try to control the kind of questions that can be asked. And this is not good for us as human beings. And, and this all seems kind of crazy when you consider the fact that the Jewish faith has always been about questions. I mean, it's cliche that rabbis only answer questions with more questions. This is just what they do. And the idea that there's only one right answer to very difficult questions is just laughable to them. In his um, memoir, Night, the Jewish writer Elie Wiesel has this great line about questions that he got from his own rabbi. He writes, every question possesses a power that does not lie in the answer. Man raises himself toward God by the questions he asks. I love that idea. Humans reach out and orient ourselves toward God, not by our answers, but by the questions that we ask. And that's really the traditional Jewish Approach and it has deeply impacted me um, in my life. It's this idea that um, the path to God is paved with questions, not answers. 
It's taken me literally decades to, just to be able to write that sentence. The path to God is paved with questions, not answers. And so it's maybe not that surprising that Jesus was all about the questions. I mean, he seemed to know questions have much more power than answers. Scholars tell us that Jesus, depending on how you do the count, asked somewhere between two and 300 questions in the gospel writings. Often when he's asked a, a direct question, he would just answer with another question or with a story that posed some kind of a, a question. You'll recognize just a, a handful of his questions. What are you looking for? That's John 1. What do you want me to do for you? That's Mark 10. Who do you say that I am? Matthew 16. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your lifespan? Matthew 6. Why are you afraid? That's Matthew 8. Why do you worry about what you wear? That's Matthew 6. Why do you worry about the splinter in your brother's eye and fail to perceive the wooden beam in your own eye? That's Matthew 7. What does it profit someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? What can one give in exchange for their soul? That's Matthew 16. And even if the smallest things are beyond your control, why are you anxious about the rest? Luke 12. Or the big one, do you love me? John 21. Or the, the, maybe the most painful one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27. I mean, if the Gospels are any indication of, of what Jesus thought, he had way more faith in questions than answers. And not like just logistical questions like, what's my schedule like? What time's our meeting? Or are the Chiefs going to win the Super Bowl or not? But deeper questions, you know, that we can't really answer definitively, but we have to ask. Things like, you know, who is God? What is God like? What does it mean to be human? What's the meaning of life? Or, or more personal ones. Why am I always so sad? What am I afraid of? Why do I worry so much? Where is God in the midst of all the pain I'm experiencing? Why can't I reach out and be vulnerable or take a risk? Why do I always do the things I don't want to do and I can't make myself do the things I really want to do? Or why do I obsess over the splinter in my neighbor's eye? Or kind of the constant question of what does God want me to do in, in this situation or just the rest of my life? When Jesus stepped into his ministry... He stepped into a Jewish community that was asking difficult questions about how to be faithful living under the rule of a violent empire. And there mostly there were questions like, why does this keep happening to us? Like, is God angry with us? And if so, how can we fix this? And they essentially divided into factions and fought over the answers. They fought for power over the temple, the treasury, the military. John the Baptist showed up in the story asking questions about this and challenging the normal answers. And he gained this big following. Then Jesus shows up and he starts going, not me, him. That's the guy you need to follow. And Jesus began to call all of the normal orthodox answers into question. One day, John was hanging around in the little town of Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, with some of his guys. And he saw Jesus walking by, and he said, Look, here is the Lamb of God. 
The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means, translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. It's always interesting to me that um, Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John are a question. What are you looking for? And he's not like saying, can I help you find the restroom or something? He's asking them about their lives, about what they really want. What are you looking for? What are you chasing in your life? What's driving you? And by implication, kind of, how's that working for you? Are you finding meaning and purpose, love and belonging, peace and rest? Because these are the things we're all truly longing for. And I think there's a sense in which... um, all of us are always either trying to answer or avoid this question that Jesus asks. What are you looking for? What seems missing in your life? What are you chasing after thinking it can make you whole? We avoid the question, I think, mostly by staying too busy for it. I mean, how many times have you been facing some like big question and you have thought or said, I don't have time to think about that right now. I'm trying not to look at my wife right now because this is my game. This is what I do. I don't have time to think about it. I just stay too busy. And sometimes I think we just keep ourselves busy because if we slow down, the questions begin to emerge and we can't avoid them. We start to feel overwhelmed by our own anxieties and fears. So we just stay too busy to entertain the questions. Or we try to answer them by finding the missing piece, right, of the puzzle attaining the next big thing that we're sure will make us feel okay. If I could just get out of debt or get that promotion or make a little more money, if I was a little more motivated, if I could just get this conflict out of the way or find these friends or find a spouse or or make a name for myself, like if I was a little more successful and wasn't so depressed or didn't have anxiety, I could find a way to be happy and become a better person. We spend all this time and energy trying to win the answers or achieve the answers. When Jesus goes the other way, he's like, you need to examine the questions. What are you looking for? What are you chasing in your life? My wife, Kristen, is a therapist, and I asked her about this. We talked for a long time about it. Ask her, like, what are, you, what are you seeing in the room with people these days? And she said, often people are just chasing happiness. That's what they say. I just want to be happy. And then you ask them, what do you mean by happy? And it's like a record scratch. They have no idea. They never really sat with that question long enough to actually know what they mean by happy. And then when they begin to sort of voice their answers, say them out loud to another person, that's all therapy is, you know? It's like you just say things out loud so that you can hear yourself say them and examine them. And then they realize that, They're just going with whatever their family or church or society told them. They have no idea what they really think happiness even means. That's the kind of question Jesus is asking of these guys. What are you looking for? You stay with that question long enough. It will transform you. Kristen also said at midlife, people are often asking, when does life get easier? 
to which I just laughed, right? Why is it always such a struggle? I mean, I've, I found a spouse, I have a family, I got enough money now, I can kind of buy it, most of my wants and needs. When does life get easier? Jesus' answer to that, I think, would be in the form of a question, what do you mean by easy? And if you stay with that question long enough, it will transform you. Kristen also said that people um, are really struggling with regret and anxiety. And they're related. Regret is like, if I would have dated this person and not that person, maybe my life would have turned out differently. If I would have gone to this college or gone into that profession, if I would have had children, if I wouldn't have had children, if I would have kept working, if I would have stayed home with the kids, if I would have deconstructed my faith earlier, maybe I wouldn't have or could have avoided these mistakes. There's all this pressure around the choices we've made when, frankly, we didn't know what we were doing. And, and we can just get swallowed up by regret, which then kind of leads to anxiety about the future that we face in light of all these things we regret. So we can easily become consumed by anxiety about the future. Regretting the past sort of leads to a bit of depression Worry about the future leads to anxiety. But the Jesus question is, you know, you're here now. You can't change the past or control the future. So what are you looking for? What's driving you? What do you think is missing? What do you want? Stay with that question long enough and it will transform you. And part of the human condition as we chase and are driven by these questions in life is that we get sort of lured into trying to attain some goal or obtain the missing piece to the puzzle so we can finally be happy or find meaning or whatever. But inevitably, when we get what we're chasing, it's never what we thought it would be. It never satisfied. It never delivers on its promise. And instead of stopping to examine that, to question it, to really try to understand why that's the case, we just move on to the next big thing and start chasing that. So we can sort of ride this roller coaster of, I guess that's what I need, right? And so we chase it, get it, and then on to the next thing. And then we chase that, get it, on to the next thing. And what Jesus invites us to do, I think, is to stay with the questions. It's kind of in the roller coaster to stop it, you know, stop there and ask, why, did, why didn't it work? Maybe to grieve the losses a little bit, examine our patterns. Why do I keep doing this? And if we stay at those, with those questions long enough over time, they will transform us. Most of the time, it's not what we do. We just ride the roller coaster, chase something else that we think will make us happy or make life easier or erase our regret and anxiety. One of the problems with this is that as we get older, the stakes for all of this become a little bit higher. We have a little more freedom, a little more resources and knowledge, some expertise, often some power. And maybe we're feeling a little more desperate or afraid. And so while we're chasing the next big thing, 
we can really hurt each other and tear up the world. The Hebrew people had a name for this. They call it Yetzer Hurrah. I love that word. Say Yetzer Hurrah. So this is the evil inclination. It's this human tendency to misuse the world, to tear things up and hurt people while we're chasing what we think is missing in life. And the result of Yetzer Hurrah came to be described as sin, um, which to the Hebrew mind wasn't really like just piety, like don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Sin was this corrupting power, right? This, this corrupting impulse that warps creation. That's sin. Bends things out of shape so they don't fit where they belong or function as they should. And so there cannot be peace. Shalom. Because shalom is everything in its rightful place, doing what it was intended to do, relating rightly to everything else, thereby all of it flourishing and finding wholeness. We have this yetzer hara, this inclination to misuse the world that sort of bends things out of shape and distorts creation so things can't function rightly. And instead of peace, then there's chaos. That's sin. Sin is chaos. Badly ordered creation. And the radical idea we find in Christ's actions here, just right at the beginning of his ministry, is this idea that the way to avoid or kind of deal with this yetzer hara is not to reach some goal, you know, not to find some missing piece or, or to know all the right answers. The way to avoid this evil inclination is to learn to stay with the really difficult questions of life long enough for them to transform us. Now, this is a really big leap for most Christians, I know, because we were handed answers our whole life. In, in church. And this is, this is really grown-up Christianity. And it's a bit counterintuitive because the, it holds that the point of all our questions is not to find answers. The point of all our questions is transformation. The transformation of the person, of community, society, all of creation, to try to bend it all back toward shalom, toward peace. It's like this great quote um, I often hear um, by Rainer Maria Rilke in his letters to a young poet. He says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Oh, that we could do that. Be patient with all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. Then he says, live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And I think this is where Jesus is trying to lead his disciples and really all of us to learn to love the questions, to live the questions instead of trying to engineer certain answers, you know? That's where we get in trouble. Tearing up the world and each other to try to achieve certain outcomes we desire. Because here's the thing about answers. Um, especially to like life's most difficult questions, especially the question Jesus is putting to his followers right here. The answer to the question Jesus is asking is not an idea. It's not a thought that you could write down on a piece of paper. 
It's not a doctrine or a belief about which you can be right or wrong. The answer to the question Jesus is asking can only be lived. In a sense, the answer is you. Your life is the answer. And you guys, this is true in a universal sense. Your life is the answer to the questions you choose to stay with. And, and, and that's why Jesus gives us a good two or 300 good ones to chew on. Because if you stay with those questions long enough, they'll transform you. Chasing the wrong questions can really mess us up. That's, that's why we spend so much time in, in our liturgies and in the scripture and trying to follow the church calendar and trying to ask the questions we've been handed from our tradition. And each of us must choose which questions we're going to live. But your life will always be the answer that Jesus is trying to call forth. Because in the end, Christianity is not about answers. It's about the transformation that takes place as we pursue the questions. Answers are mostly about power. Like, you know that, right? Answers are almost always about power. Like, um, people who always want to fight over answers, they usually pivot to, I'm trying to protect truth. When people start saying, saying that, you, you just know they're interested in power, not truth. Only fools and fanatics claim a monopoly on truth. The wise are always full of questions. And, and this is why they've learned to walk by faith, not sight, not certitude. They navigate the world by their questions, not their answers. After Jesus asked the question, it's funny that his new disciples responded with a question of their own. Rabbi, they said, where are you staying? Which sort of sounds like um, they're missing the point or trying to change the subject. Like he asked them what they want out of life and they're like, hey, what room are you in? You know, it's like, <laughs> sounds kind of goofy. Does not come off well in English. Um, translated, it says, where do you abide? Where do you remain? But it's a specific word um, in Greek. It's meno, which is a big word. It's used like five times in just this short passage, 42 times in the Gospel of John. And it's in a ton of familiar texts. Let me read just a few. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, menos, remains, abides in me, and I in them. If you meno, remain or abide in my word, you are my disciples. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son menos, abides, remains, stays with the family forever. The words I speak, I speak not of myself, but of the Father who menos, stays, abides, remains in me. Meno in me as I meno in you as branches meno, remain, abide in the vine. If you meno in my words and I meno in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, so remain, meno, abide in my love. And one of my favorites, these things have I spoken that my joy may be meno, you. And your joy may be complete. So their, their question isn't like, what room are you in? They're asking, where do you abide? We're like, where do you come from? What's the source of your life and mission and, and your being? And by asking this, 
Where do you minnow? Especially in light of how this word is used in the whole Gospel of John. They're really asking, is there a place for us there? Is there a safe place for us if we remain minnow with you? Can you keep us? Can you sustain us while we're asking all these questions that are so difficult and confusing? And, and it's, I think, really the question we're always asking, consciously or not, we're asking this or avoiding it. Is there a safe place for me? Is there some place I can go, a community I can be part of where I can find meaning and purpose and love and belonging and peace, rest? That's what they're asking Jesus. And then this, there's a huge twist at the end, and it's fascinating to me, and I think this is the best part of this whole story. They, they ask this kind of, what seems like it should be a very simple question for Jesus, Jesus to answer, and he refuses to answer. He doesn't promise anything. All he says is, come and see. And I think all the power of this passage is in his refusal to answer their question. If he answered plainly, then this is a very different story. It's almost like he was just saying, look, I could tell you who I am, but there are just things about me and about who I am and what I'm doing that you're going to have to see for yourself and wrestle with. Like, I could give you answers, but you don't really need answers. You need questions, difficult, like intractable, unyielding questions. You need to wrestle with them um, for a while if you're ever going to grow up and get beyond the yetzer hara, this evil inclination. I could, I could give you answers, but it's the questions that will transform you, and that's what you need. You need a whole new way of being human in the world. So Jesus, he doesn't give him answers. He just says, come and see. Come follow me. Come sit through just thousands of conversations asking difficult questions. And he, he points us to a different way. And this, this invitation, come and see, this invitation to follow Jesus really um, is an invitation to learn to do life in his way. And it's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And it's not about holding the right beliefs or obtaining the right answers it's about menowing, remaining, abiding, staying with the questions about meaning and belonging and peace. And then what happens is our lives become the answer. Our lives become the holistic response to the questions we live. I love this story, and I think it's a really important one for us, living as we do in the midst of a honestly really confusing time to be alive in the world, just a disorienting moment in history. And I say it a lot, but I think it's important to remember, Christianity, it was never meant to be a belief system. It's not a set of answers. It's just not. It's a whole new way to be a human being that comes at the end of a long journey of transformation. And this journey toward becoming human, as human was intended to be, it's not about answers. It's about the transformation that takes place as we pursue the questions. 
And Christ's invitation is just come and see. It's not easy answers. It's just come and see. Trust that through following Christ that God will be with us. God will sustain us as we learn to live the questions. So if you're in a season where you're, you're flying high and feeling great, and it's a great you know, moment for you, this is a wonderful time to dive in to some really juicy questions about meaning and belonging and peace and rest. And if you're in a season where you just feel tired and weary or beat up or a bit lost and alone, maybe a bit discouraged or stuck, just remember it's never the answer that opens the door. It's always the question. And so our task is, as Roka said, to live the questions. Jesus' invitation is come and see. Just come follow me. Do your life the way I did my life, which involves a ton of questions. And just trust that the questions will always leave us closer to God. I, I can tell you that this has absolutely been true in my life. And, and most of the friends I know who have done this for a long time, you can trust that the questions will always lead you closer to God. If you come and see, if you meno, remain in, in Christ, the questions will always bring you closer to God. It's the questions that opens the door, not the answers. So don't be afraid. You can ask any question of God. And um, then the key is, don't expect an answer Expect to meet God and expect to find yourself, your identity that's, as Paul said, hidden with Christ in God. Don't, don't look for answers. Look for God and allow God to teach us who we are. That's, that's the idea. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, God, um, Thank you for this story and really for this season of Epiphany where we just tell these stories about Christ walking around and just um, toppling the easy answers. And we just confess we're awfully busy and of course our busyness is a way to avoid thinking about our lives. But we ask that in this season of Epiphany that you would, um, you would show up, that you would make known, that you would appear, appear to us. Pray God, as a lot of us who grew up in, in churches that were, that were heavy on controlling answers, as we feel just kind of, this feels a little unsafe, I just pray that we would trust you, that you have us, that you can keep us, you can sustain us while we struggle. And mostly I just pray that we would be there for one another, that we'd be brave to share our questions with one another and talk about them along the way. You'd make us patient for answers to come in time and then you'd make us suspicious of even our answers and looking for you to show up in our lives to teach us who we are.
what it means to be human. We hold this all before you, our God. Amen. We stand, please. And we're going to receive communion now. The reason we receive communion is on Christ, on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus gathered all his people. He did something kind of weird. He took a loaf of bread and had them all eat from the same loaf and did the same thing with the cup. And he said, this is a symbolic thing we're doing, this kind of symbolic meal where I'm asking you to receive my life into your life, to feast on me, to be made out of the stuff I'm made of. And then when I leave, you're going to go out and be my hands and feet in the world. And he just said, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Eat this bread and drink this cup. And so that's why we receive communion. It's just this way of sharing a common meal, saying we're all feasting on the same life here and trying to become part of the same body. And um, so this is also why we invite anybody. We don't put restrictions on it. Anybody can come join us at the table. And um, so I would invite you, if you would, just pray with me as we bless um, the bread and the cup. Lord, we give you thanks for this meal, this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Will you come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out? And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?